The legendary blunder took place in 1979 at Laney High School in Wilmington, North Carolina. It was toward the halfway point of the school year, which meant it was time for basketball tryouts. A five-foot, 10-inch sophomore was itching to make the varsity squad, and it was up to head coach, head varsity coach, Clifton Herring, who was just 26 years old at the time, to pick the 15 best players that would give his team the best chance at winning. Now, Coach Herring didn't prefer to put sophomores on the varsity team. And what's more, he was looking to add more height to his varsity team. This stacked the odds against this sophomore who is only 5 foot 10 inches tall. But it didn't damper his determination going into the week of tryouts. Well, with everything left out on the courts after the week long of tryouts with drills and scrimmages, the moment of truth finally arrived when Coach Herring posted the rosters on the wall that listed everybody who made the JV team and the varsity team. So you can imagine all those high school boys crowding around those two pieces of paper, scrambling and searching to find their names. Among them are this 15-year-old, 5-foot-10-inch sophomore, seeing if he made varsity. And to his dismay, he did not beat the odds. And he made JV, not varsity. And to pour salt in the proverbial wound, uh, his friend and fellow sophomore, Leroy Jenkins, who was 6-foot-7 inches tall, did beat the odds and make the varsity team. Well, the main character of our story was devastated, and he felt slighted. So after he found out the news, he went home, he locked himself in his room, and he cried. Well, this 15-year-old who didn't make his high school varsity's basketball team went on to play basketball at the University of North Carolina. Uh, he went on to win a national championship Get selected third overall uh, by the Chicago Bulls in the 1981 draft. Uh, he won six NBA championships, five Most Valuable Player awards, scored 72,000 career points, and is now widely recognized as the greatest basketball player of all time. Uh, if you haven't guessed it by now, yes, this is Michael Jordan. Um, and he is the one who didn't make his varsity basketball team when he was a sophomore, when he was 15. Sports Illustrated journalist Thomas Lake wrote this about Michael Jordan. He said, over the next three decades, Jordan would become a world-class collector of emotional wounds, a champion grudge holder, a magician at converting real and even imagined insults into rocket fuel that made him fly. Well, when Michael Jordan was 15, he wasn't much greater than an ordinary basketball player. But seeing what he became eventually makes not recognizing his potential seem like an unbelievable blunder. Well, today we pick up in the gospel according to Mark where we find Jesus returning to his hometown. And growing up, by all appearances, Jesus seemed like an ordinary guy. But now he returns and they get to see, what he, uh, see and hear what he is now and that he is anything but ordinary. And what's more unbelievable than failing to recognize potential that's hidden is failing to recognize what you see and hear right in front of you. 
That's what takes place in Mark chapter 6. If you're not there, I invite you to turn there with me. If you're looking at a Bible in the pew rack in front of you, you'll find Mark 6 on page 841. We're going to look at the first six and a half verses, um, or five and a half verses, actually. Page 841, Mark chapter 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not, the, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Well, if you're new to Old Oak Bible Church or just by way of reminder, uh, this is pretty much what we do every Sunday morning. We take a portion of the Bible, which we believe is God's word, meaning that he moved human authors to write all that he wanted them to write, working even through their writing styles, their personalities, and their circumstances. And we take a portion of God's word and seek to explain it, find what the author's intent was for the original audience. And also, we know that God's word is living and active, so we want to see what it says to us, what God says to us in it today, how we apply its original meaning to us in our lives today. So we try to distill every portion we consider uh, into one main thought that it communicates and trace how that passage develops that main thought. So as we're considering Mark chapter 6 in the first six verses, I think the main thing it communicates, you'll find it printed in your bulletin, is that in light of God's patience, grace, and, uh, and witness, he's left for himself. Rejecting him is ultimately unreasonable and even arrogant. In light of God's patience, grace, and witness, he's left for himself. Rejecting him is ultimately unreasonable and even arrogant. Well, we'll see how this develops. We'll walk through this story in three different parts. See, the first one and a half verses, something of Jesus' heart, Jesus' graciousness and boldness. And then in the second one and a half verses, verse, the second part of verse 2 through verse 3, we'll see the many peoples in Nazareth, their astonishment of Jesus. And then to close, to wrap up the last two verses, we'll see in turn Jesus' astonishment of them. Well, as is the case in many parts of the Gospels, here we see something of Jesus' heart, our Lord's heart, and seek grace to follow him and reflect his heart. But we also see in how those around Jesus responded to him, noticing both good examples and bad examples. So it'll be no different for us today in this passage. So that's kind of the roadmap ahead. Um, if you have a phone with a GPS, like you, load, you type in your destination and you could see like everywhere you're going. Um, but before you do that, it might help to take a look around and see where you are. Uh, and so that's what we want to do. We're picking up where we left off last winter in the Gospel of Mark, we were in it for maybe 10 to 12 weeks, and we got through the first five chapters. 
Um, and when we say gospel of Mark, that's a word Christians throw out a lot, and we might get confused what that means. Uh, so the full name is the gospel according to Mark. Uh, and so we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, those are the books describing the gospel, describing Jesus' life, his death and resurrection. Um, and then we say gospel shorthand is the message of the good news. That's what the Greek word means, good news, gospel, euangelion. Um, good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. So gospel sometimes refers to books. Uh, sometimes it, it refers to that main message. Um, so like I said, we got through the first five chapters of Mark last winter, and the goal is for the next several winters, just take a couple chapters at a time until we finally finish. Uh, so maybe we'll have a big party and eat cake once we finally finish Mark. Um, I found it's helpful to alternate between uh, New Testament and Old Testament in the same year, just so that we get a little bit of the taste of the whole counsel of God in one year. Um, not everybody does that. That's okay. Uh, so just some background info on Mark, helping, helping us to read it well. Uh, so the author of Mark, you may have guessed it, is Mark, um, otherwise called uh, John Mark, other places in the Bible. And John Mark rolled with some of the biggest names in the early church. He hung out with guys like Paul and Barnabas, had a falling out with them, but it eventually reconciled. And then he made his way to Rome with Peter. And tr early church tradition tells us that it was Peter who is the main source of Mark's gospel. And I think that's stunning because if you read about Peter and Mark, he is anything but impressive. I think he is the least impressive in Mark. I think it just shows us that Peter finally understood grace, that he didn't feel the need to be impressive. Um, so yeah, that's, Mark wrote this book, and he likely wrote it in the mid-50s, Again, it's a reminder, we're not talking about the 1950s. We're talking about the 0050s, the first century. Uh, and this would make it the first of the four gospel books. Um, and who's Mark writing to? Well, scholars look at different things Mark emphasizes, different things that he assumes his audience knows, and different little details. And they conclude that Mark's likely writing to non-Jewish Christians in the city of Rome. Um, and that's where uh, Peter ended up eventually. Uh, so later on, we'll hit some of the highlights of what's happened in the first five chapters of Mark. But for now, just reminding ourselves of the main thing that Mark wants to do in writing this gospel. Uh, the main thing he wants to do is just kind of strip all of the ornaments and highlight Jesus and his identity. You can think of the main, his main purpose comes in chapter 4, verse 41, and the question comes, who then is this Jesus? I think that's the main question Mark wants to answer. Jesus' identity as the Messiah and the Son of God. And also, in light of that, Mark also focuses a lot on what it means to be Jesus' disciple, to respond to him rightly, and to follow Jesus. So I think that's absolutely relevant for today who Jesus is, and what it means to follow him. We'll see that uh, those themes picked up again in Mark 6, in the first six verses. And so let's head into the first part of that story. Uh, the first one and a half verses, there we see Jesus' graciousness and his boldness. Um, these verses, you, you can look at them, they mainly function to set the scene for the main action. 
But if we think about it, I think they do give us a glimpse into Jesus' heart. Well, read along with me, beginning in verse 1, chapter 6. It says this. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. You guys know about, you know, where's Waldo? Henrietta? You know, the tricks in those is like you don't know where people, the, the characters are. Uh, that's not the case in the Gospels, always giving us uh, indications where Jesus is throughout his life. Uh, and so here in his whereabouts, Jesus spent much of his three-year public ministry around the area of the Sea of Galilee. It would be the northern part of Israel. Um, and the Sea of Galilee, uh, by the way, is less than a sea, more, than a, more of a big lake. And we just flip back to the previous chapter, chapter 5, where Jesus was. Uh, Jesus went to a town likely on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, which would have been a a Gentile region, a non-Jewish region. And on the way there, it was an eventful journey. He calmed a storm. And when he got there, immediately he encounters this demon-possessed man who he heals. But then he gets kicked out there and he goes back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which would have been the western shore, more of a Jewish region. And there we read of him healing a woman with an ongoing bleeding ailment and raising a little girl from the dead. So together we see just from the previous chapter uh, a little bit of who Jesus is. We see a good good faith response to him and we see Jesus' authority over demons. We see his authority over disease. We even see his authority over death. That's what we're coming off the heels of in chapter 5. And now chapter 6 opens by stating that Jesus is on his way back to his hometown. And we remember from uh, chapter 1 verse 9 of the Gospel of Mark that his hometown was Nazareth, uh, which is about 25 miles away from the Sea of Galilee where he was. It took a little bit of a journey. Well, but has somebody ever told you um, where they're from and then immediately followed it up with, you've probably never heard of it? Not like in a, uh, you're not cool enough to have heard of where I'm from, but like literally, you probably never heard of where I'm from because no one has heard of where I'm from. That's something like Nazareth. Nazareth isn't mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned in any rabbinic literature not even mentioned in any historical work until two centuries after Jesus' birth. The city itself, Nazareth, covered maybe 60 acres of a rocky hillside. And its population was likely less than 500 people. This is where Jesus grew up. And so what was Jesus thinking going back to his hometown? Mark doesn't say that his high school reunion was coming up. Uh, Further, uh, verse 4 Uh, tells us, uh, verse 4 of chapter 6, would tell us that Jesus knew that it was a possibility that the people of his hometown wouldn't exactly be ecstatic about him coming back. And even he he would know that we'd prove that further by his family's reaction to him in chapter 3. His family told him that he was out of his mind. And so here, he's still planning to go back to his hometown where nobody said, if you make it there, you can make it anywhere. And he's going back there knowing the possibility that people might not be thrilled to see him. 
Well, maybe we can relate to Jesus a little bit at this point. If you're reluctant to schedule visits back home, but you do anyway because you know it's probably something that you should do. But if you do actually schedule your visits back home, you'll do so in a certain way. You'll make your appearance and then you'll leave. When you're there, you'll try to avoid any ruffling of feathers possible. And then say your goodbyes, give your hugs, and then go back home. Jesus knows that it could potentially be awkward and even have a lot of tension when he goes back to Nazareth. But he schedules a visit anyway. And when he gets there, he doesn't take the easy way out. And when he gets there, he teaches. He doesn't avoid ruffling any feathers. He doesn't avoid the elephant in the room. He brings out the elephant and places it in the center of the room. It says he goes to the synagogue and taught there. This would have been a common practice uh, in all the Jewish cities in Israel, uh, having traveling rabbis teach and uh, be a guest preacher of, so, of sorts. And if we read the Gospels alongside themselves, we read the Gospel of Luke at this point, we read of uh, what Jesus taught on that Sabbath day. Normally, the practice was, they, much like us, they would have a portion of Scripture, and the rabbi would teach and preach based on that. And the portion that day, on the Sabbath, in Nazareth, was what our call to worship was, Isaiah 61, which talks about God's anointed, which talks about the Messiah and his redeeming work for his people. And that's the passage, and Jesus then gives the sense, and he just says bluntly, this is about me. I fulfill this. Can you imagine just the stunning look that the people who he grew up around would have? Well, Mark doesn't tell us uh, anything that the, his disciple, Jesus' disciples did when he was with them. But Mark does say that Jesus' disciples were with him when he came back to Nazareth. They got to observe Jesus do this. Now, as Jesus' disciples today, we get to do the same thing. We get to read of him and observe him going back to his hometown. And I think there we get to see a little bit of Jesus' heart. I think we see at least two characteristics of Jesus' heart. We see his graciousness and we see his boldness. I want you to think for a second. This won't be very hard to think of. Think of the most stubborn person that you know. Maybe someone who comes to mind immediately. Maybe the first person that should come to mind is you. <laughs> you think of that person, and then you think of Jesus here. Jesus, as the Son of God, has a heart for those people. Jesus has a heart for stubborn people. Here he is in Mark 6, coming to his hometown, aware that it's a good possibility that the people there would be stubborn. And if you think about it, this is just a snapshot of Jesus coming to earth in the first place. Jesus knew that his mission as the Messiah would be that of a man of sorrows, would be that of a man who is despised and rejected by people. 
He knew that he would come into his own and his own people would reject him. He knew that in advance and he came anyway. He didn't wait until we were lovable, until we stopped being stubborn, until we cleaned ourselves up. No, he came to us while we were unlovable. He died for us while we were still sinners. And it just continues God's pattern of patience and love for persistently pursuing his people. So, friend, if you're here and and you're hesitant toward Jesus, kind of on the fence, not really embraced him yet, consider the one who has a heart to seek those who don't seek him. And it's even more than that. It's even more than that. Consider the one who has a heart for those who hate him and who reject him. Who do you know like that? Well, for us who have embraced Christ, bowing to him as our Lord and trusting in him for the forgiveness of our sins, how can we who have received such grace not extend it to others? God loves, loved us while we were stubborn and sinful, Who are we not to do the same? Friends, all of us were like this. And the only reason we're no longer stubborn toward God is because of his grace toward us. It's because of his heart toward us. So let's ask for God's grace to reflect his heart for us to other people around us. Well, we see Jesus' gracious heart here in the act of going to his hometown to teach I also think we see the boldness of his heart. And most of the time, friends, graciousness requires boldness. Because Jesus didn't stay at the point of, ah, it, would just, it would be so great if all the people in my hometown were reconciled to God. It would be so great if that happened. Now, I just know they won't listen. And I, I, it, would, it would be really great, though. Jesus didn't stay there. Jesus went beyond the idea that being gracious was a good idea. And he actually was gracious. Went past the idea to the actual action of it. So, friends, we know that we can relate to this, that graciousness requires boldness. We've experienced that the hardest conversations about important things, about things of the Lord, are often with the people we know the best. But here we see Jesus' example, that the opinions of people don't change the truth about Jesus. And here we see that the people of Nazareth would not have heard about God's grace that came to them in one of their own if Jesus didn't tell them about it, if Jesus wasn't bold enough to say something about it. So here we see, just in the setup of the story, a little bit of Jesus' heart, his graciousness and his boldness. Well, Mark continues in relaying Jesus' hometown visit as he goes into the second part of verse 2. And there he shows us that what he's most concerned with. Mark's most concerned with telling about the people's reaction to Jesus. And you read that reaction as a whole, and it, it seems a bit of a mixed bag. Have a contradiction of feelings there. And the first half of that reaction is astonishment. It's like they're amazed by what they see and what they hear. But then the second half of that reaction is, turns a, a decidedly negative turn. 
to attack Jesus. So read along with me, beginning of the uh, second part of verse 2, where it says this. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So like we said, we can kind of see two halves of their response. See in the first half that they can't deny what they're seeing and hearing. The way that Mark summarizes their response is that they were astonished, amazed. Maybe you can use the word flabbergasted. So you might say that the skeptic, the critic would say, wow, this was a small town, 500 people. There was probably nothing exciting that ever happened in Nazareth before Jesus. It'd be easy to please, easy to impress. I might grant you that. But I don't know about in this area. Now, there wasn't many exciting things that happened, sure. But you know what they were used to? They were used to hearing rabbis teach in synagogue. If there was anything they were used to, it was that. So it was no small feat for a rabbi to be this impressive, to be this astonishing. We can relate to it some today in 2018. Uh, You can fact check, verify this. I'm not sure if this is uh, totally accurate, Um, but it's what one link on Google showed me, so I'm going to go with it. Um, Last year broke a record. There were one million books published. And it's not not even by publishing companies. There were one million self-published books. Think of all the voices competing to be heard. This is kind of the context that Jesus is in as a rabbi. And yet the people here find him astonishing. And so we see the first three questions in verse 2 all go together. And the first question, the things they're talking about, relate to the second two questions, uh, his wisdom and his mighty works. So by the time Jesus got back home to Nazareth, his reputation would have preceded him. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 28 says, uh, Jesus' fame spread throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. The people in Nazareth likely would have heard of Jesus' encounters with scribes and Pharisees that left scribes and Pharisees dumbfounded, like his encounter with them on another Sabbath day in another synagogue back in chapter 3, where Jesus healed a man and the scribes and Pharisees couldn't respond to him. The people in Nazareth likely heard of Jesus' major healings, like the ones in the previous chapter, chapter 5. They would have heard about the woman with a discharge of blood who touched Jesus and was healed. They would have heard about the little 12-year-old girl, Jairus' daughter, who was dead, but Jesus raised her from the dead. And now, this guy is right in front of him, and they see that he lives up to the hype. And they're still astonished that his reputation is not false, but he lives up to it. And all their questions then concern the source of Jesus' wisdom and power. Where does all that he's doing come from? Well, earlier in Mark, there's some who say all this that Jesus does comes from Satan. And Jesus responds like, that just flat doesn't make any sense if Satan himself is casting out demons. 
But even here, the people of Nazareth, they, they wonder, where does all this come from? But they don't even try to answer. We, knowing the whole story, know the answer. We could supply the answer. The, the answer is God. This is the Son of God in the flesh. That explains the power and the wisdom. So these people of Nazareth were astonished, but they couldn't carry out their astonishment to its logical conclusion. Friends, we can do the same thing because this same Jesus is in front of us. Now you say, man, hold on, hold on a second, Steve. That, I know that sounds tweetable and quotable. The same Jesus is in front of us, but I don't see a 2,000-year-old rabbi standing up here. I don't see this same Jesus in front of us. No? Okay, I'll grant you that. But the same Jesus that was astonishing then is astonishing now and today. And you can think about that even from an objective, secular, historical standpoint. You could even start there. And you can look at the history of the last 2,000 years and you, could buy, you cannot reasonably conclude that there is a name more central to the history of the last 2,000 years than that of Jesus Christ. Just from a, a secular objective standpoint, you, can, you, you can't really conclude that there's been another name that has received so much persecution than that of Jesus. You can't conclude that there's been another name that's received so much persecution and not just endured it, not just survived, but have thrived through it. What's the explanation of that? Just that Jesus is interesting? Just that he's, he's really good at what he does? He has some great insights about life? Friends, we would say that the explanation for that is that Jesus is alive. And he actually is who he says he is. We believe that Jesus actually said that he came to die and save his people. And he said that he would rise again after that. And we believe that he actually did that. That he actually died for his people. And he actually rose again. And so they're not just good, objective, historical reasons to believe that actually happened. We believe that because that's transformed our lives. So we may be tempted to think that Jesus isn't astonishing anymore, that God hasn't left us with a witness. But just think about where you are right now. Think about where you are right now. We're in a building full of people who claim to know, experience, and claim to have been saved by this Jesus. And we're looking at words written about this Jesus that people have been reading about him for 2,000 years. Surely this is, God still has a witness. So friends, don't be like the people of Nazareth and deny what's right in front of you. Refuse to see, take your astonishment to its logical conclusion. Don't stop at being impressed. Don't stop at just acknowledging that Jesus has good insights. The response that Jesus calls to himself is to repent of your sin and trust in him with everything you have. And even for Christians, even for Christians, we can forget that the same Jesus that was astonishing then is astonishing now. We can forget that Jesus' teaching, his death, and his resurrection, we could be so familiar with those things 
and forget those things actually happened. And then forget how astonishing and amazing that is. Well, the astonishment of the many people in Nazareth in the second half of their response to Jesus takes a decidedly negative turn in verse 3. And why does, why does that happen? Why does it turn sour? I think at the root of it, the people in Nazareth can't explain the tension. They can't resolve the tension between Jesus' obvious divinity, that he's obviously from God, has the wisdom and power of God. They can't resolve the tension between that and Jesus' obvious humanity, that they saw this guy grow up. They can't resolve it, so they take offense at him. They plainly see Jesus' wisdom and mighty works, but they also plainly saw him growing up. They knew Jesus as a carpenter, tacked on, really, literally one who makes or produces things, usually out of wood, uh, but sometimes out of stone. Nazareth, there would have been, wouldn't have been a lot of wood, would have been more stone. They knew Jesus uh, as growing up in his family. Strangely, they refer to Jesus uh, as the son of Mary. It's strange because you would usually refer to someone's father, not their mother. This could be saying that Joseph, Joseph had died uh, by this point, or it could even be a dig that they believed Jesus was conceived illegitimately. Their observations tell us that Jesus grew up pretty ordinary, looking just like his brothers and sisters. And just a quick sidebar, I think that's really comforting. I think it's really comforting that the Lord knew for 30 years just what it's like to be an ordinary person. Not any notoriety, not any fame, just doing humble work, living in a family. Jesus experienced that. Well, this is who, the Jesus that they know, um, and they can't resolve the tension between what they know about Jesus and what they see about Jesus right now. And maybe we can sympathize with the people of Nazareth a little bit. We can imagine if one of our coworkers who works in the cubicle next to us at work, maybe his name's Carl, Carl disappears for a year, uh, and then comes back and tells you that he is God. And you tell, you're like, Carl, like, you work on, you're like a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet guy. <laughs> like, I see pictures of your family up here. That's not who you are. Well, the analogy breaks down a little bit, but we can kind of get that sense. It just doesn't make sense to them. The famili their familiarity with Jesus prevented them from having faith in Jesus. They took offense at him is how verse 3 ends. That word, take offense, is where we get the word scandal. And it's the same word used for stumbling block in other places like 1 Corinthians 1. I wonder if there's something like that for you. I wonder if there's some kind of stumbling block. Something that prevents you from having faith in Jesus. Maybe you've been around church in Jesus things your whole, your whole life, and it's nice, but it's, at the end of the day, kind of blocked. Uh, maybe you can't get over the stumbling block of pain and suffering. Maybe you can't get over the stumbling block of how badly you've seen people represent Jesus. Now, I don't want to delegitimize any of those stumbling blocks, but I would just say, don't be like the people in Nazareth here. They're running a race. They come to a hurdle. 
They see it. They don't even try to jump over it. They don't even try to remove it. They just stop running. So here, friend, while we want to be sensitive to stumbling blocks and even say it's possible to be offended, and that's a biblical category for people to wrong other people, what this story would tell us is that it's also possible to be wrong for being offended. That's not a popular thing to say. The people in Nazareth were wrong for taking offense at Jesus. They came to wrong conclusions about him. So don't be like them. Don't don't come to the, the stumbling block and just stop. That's unreasonable. And I would argue that's even arrogant. That's saying there's no possible explanation out there that would satisfy me, so I'm not even gonna try. Well, the offense of the people in Nazareth reminds us, friends, that Jesus and his gospel are offensive and do contain stumbling blocks. We believe in a crucified Messiah. We believe in a crucified Lord. That's weak. That doesn't make sense on the surface. We believe that we need Jesus because we can't do anything to save ourselves. That's offensive to our self-esteem and pride. We believe that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is offensive. So it's not our aim to offend people, but boy, we should not be surprised when people find Jesus and the gospel to be offensive. Well, last part of it, Jesus' astonishment. After highlighting Nazareth's response to Jesus, Mark, Mark's camera gazes back to focus on Jesus himself. We see at this point that thankfully Jesus is not like us. He does not set out for revenge. He does not, not get rejected by his people and say, you know what, I'll show them. I'll show these people. I'll show these people how great I am. He's not like Michael Jordan at this point, who says, I'll turn their rejection into rocket fuel to get back at them. No, 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 no. Jesus has plenty of resources to process well how his hometown rejects him. Let's take a look at how Jesus processes his, uh, the rejection of his hometown, uh, just verse by verse, starting in verse 4. Verse 4, prophets uh, no regard in his hometown. That would tell us that Jesus has a category for this, that Jesus knows that rejecting God's chosen messenger is not anything that's new. People don't like being told what to do. People don't like being told that they're not living right. So people, therefore, have rejected God's prophets for centuries, from Elijah to Jeremiah. It's so much of a problem that you have other guys emerging who would try to figure out what people wanted to hear and just tell people that, and they would identify as prophets so that they wouldn't get rejected. Just make up whatever people want to hear. I would say one of the true marks of a biblical prophet, a prophet in the Bible, is that not everybody liked what they said. It's a good reminder for us. We should remind ourselves of this often. That if our version of Jesus never does or says anything that challenges how we live or what we love, if that's our version of Jesus, 
We don't have Jesus. We have a Jesus that's just like us, just like ourselves. So here, um, Jesus shows in, this, in verse 4 that the response from his hometown didn't catch him completely off guard. You see here, this verse assumes that Jesus is a prophet, but we're told that he's so much more. The very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we said this is the good news about the Son of God. We even see later in Mark, a voice from heaven, the Father, saying, this is my beloved Son. We even hear voices from hell, demons, saying, you are the Son of God. And now we have people who are so close to Jesus who can't even recognize him as a prophet. Opposition to Jesus had infiltrated his closest circles, his own family, his disciples, even his hometown right here. And so here, Jesus is experiencing something deeply human. Seeing the people closest to you reject God. Jesus knows what that's like. That's the backdrop to verse 5, where, he said, where it says, and he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few, people, a few sick people and healed them. Now, just to clarify, this isn't talking about ability. It's pretty clear by now that Jesus can heal people. Neither is this saying that Jesus only did mighty works when people believed. We even see in the last two chapters, Jesus calmed the storms while the disciple didn't have faith. Even in chapter 5, Jesus cast out the demon man in the garrisons, even while he didn't have faith. When it says unable, it means that he was unable to do this without compromising what he came to do, without compromising his mission. You think of how Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Turn these breads into stone. Could Jesus not turn breads, bread and sto- or stones into bread? He could. But he could not do that without compromising his mission. If Jesus went around doing miracles indiscriminately anywhere and everywhere, he would have become a sideshow. It would have been theatrical. He would have ended up the winner of Israel's Got Talent. (laughs) But he would not have come to usher in the kingdom of God. That's why he came. That's the purpose of his miracles. The purpose of his miracles is to show and to prove to give a little preview of this is what it will be like when I usher in fully the kingdom of God. But before that happens, I have to die so that people can enter the kingdom of God. That's the first part of it. So if he jumped to the second part, he would have compromised the first part. So he didn't do miracles to put on a show, but to demonstrate that the kingdom of God was here in him. And how could he demonstrate that to people who just shut him out outright? You can't, pour some, you can't pour liquid into a bottle with its cap on. So then we come to verse 6, the last one. Kind of a summary of Jesus' response to his hometown. Simply, Jesus marvels. This is one of only two times where Jesus is said to be amazed. The other time being when he saw the faith of a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier. So friends, here's a reminder that being exposed to Jesus does not guarantee that we will have faith in Jesus. Being exposed to Jesus does not guarantee that we will have faith in Jesus. This story, I think, puts some chinks in the armor of the common sentiment of, oh, you're only a Christian because you grew up as a Christian. 
I would say, all right, I'll grant you that. Well, first, you got to apply that logic to yourself a little bit because you're only a Western secular person because you grew up in the Western secular culture. But also, at some point, we have to make this decision for ourselves. We have to respond to Jesus on our own. Our, our mom, our grandmother can't do that for us. Nobody else can repent and believe in the gospel for you. You have to do that on your own. So this story reminds us that it's possible to be really, really close to Jesus and still not believe in him. It's possible for the people who are the most likely to believe not to believe. But the converse is also true, which is so comforting. That it's possible for the people who are the least likely to believe, to believe. So the most astonishing thing from this story in Jesus' life is not that a carpenter from no name Nazareth could be the son of God. The most astonishing thing is that people could come face to face with the son of God and not believe in him. And the obstacle they're showing is not ultimately Jesus. They were the ones who were unreasonable. The obstacle was their own hearts. Commentator James Edwards says this, Humanity wants something other than what God gives. The greatest obstacle to faith is not the failure of God to act, but the unwillingness of the human heart to accept the God who condescends to us in only a carpenter, the son of Mary. So friends, unbelief is truly unbelievable, especially in light of how gracious God has been to reveal himself to us, to act on our behalf in his son to save us. So unbelief and rejection of Christ is heartbreaking. But God is so wise and powerful that he can use something even as heartbreaking as rejecting Christ to accomplish his will and to accomplish his purposes. If if this is not a, this was a part of the plan. If Christ is not rejected, Christ does not die for our sins. How do you beat somebody like that? Beat somebody who turns any rejection, any attack into good. This is, this is the Lord's work. So on our own, just to conclude, we are no different from the people of Nazareth. We see other people got, got healed. Jesus healed other people in Nazareth. We don't know their stories, uh, but at the very least, those people are a reminder that there is hope for stubborn, sinful people. There is hope that God is not just accounted for us rejecting him. He's not just accounted for our stubbornness. There's hope that he's actually died for it. Won't you trust the God who has done that? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are so thankful, so thankful for your patience with us. God, we are so thankful for your graciousness in coming to us even when you knew full well that you would be rejected and that you would die. In dying for us while we still sinned against you. Oh, Lord, thank you for your graciousness. God, in light of that, we, we pray that you would help us reflect your heart to other people who do not know you, to help reflect your heart in this world, to be gracious, to be bold,
Lord God, we also ask that you would help us think through our stumbling blocks. Help us be reasonable with them. And now we ask finally that you would help us behold Jesus, the one who has done this on our behalf, the one who has accounted for our rejection and has died for it. Thank you, Lord. We trust you. We want grace to trust you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, We are going to...